Welcome to the Heartland Free Church Sermon Podcast. We are so happy to have you joining us today. If you are a first-time listener or first-time visitor here at the church, we would love to get connected with you. You can click that link in the podcast summary. That is our online connection card. If you'd just like to learn more about us as a church, you can visit heartlandfree.com or you can download the Heartland app in whatever app store you prefer. Thank you again for joining us. We've got a fantastic message for you this morning, and we will be getting into that right now. So Pastor Denny and Pastor Jeff are both out of town uh, this week, so uh, you're stuck with me, uh, but it is, I'm very excited to be here with you this morning uh, and uh, to preach. And so I've spent a fair bit of time trying to think through how to transition from this beautiful moment of thanksgiving and commissioning to a text that starts off with God striking down his children. And I tell you, to be honest, it was pretty hard. I didn't really come up with anything good. I really only had one idea, and it was terrible. But I'm going to share it with you anyway. (laughs) So what I could have said was, you know, we, we just had this moment of transitioning, taking our children's ministry and taking care of kids. What I could have said was, speaking of things that are really hard and can cause you to cry out in pain, let's look at Hosea 6. But I didn't want to go there. So instead, we're just going to jump right in this morning. And so Antony Flew uh, was born in 1923. Uh, he was the son of a pastor, uh, and he went to and attended a Christian school. But Antony Flew rejected his upbringing. Uh, he denied the Christianity of his youth, and he became an atheist. And not just any atheist... Antony Flew became the most prominent atheist in the world from 1950 all the way up through 1990. But then in 2004, something strange happened. Flew announced that he had reconsidered the evidence for the existence of God and concluded that it was reasonable to believe that God existed. Specifically, he was persuaded by the beautiful intricacies of life, and he believed that the only way this life could have come about was from God. However, Flu did not become a Christian. You see, he believed that God could be a creator, but he didn't believe that this creator God had spoken to you and to me. He believed that God could create, but he didn't believe that the human soul continued to exist after death. In 2010, Antony Flew died. He died believing in a God, but not believing in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He died believing in a creator, but not trusting in Christ. Because he believed that God existed, but he didn't believe that God had communicated his desires and his will to each of us. Now, this idea is common today. Maybe you or maybe some of your friends or families have this same kind of idea, this belief that, sure, God exists. I believe that something had to have created this universe. God exists but they don't know how to properly relate to God. 
right? But this idea is also common and creeps in inside the church in some sneaky ways, right? We also believe in God, and we believe that God has revealed himself to us in Christ, and yet how we relate to God is sometimes shaped more by our own ideas. It's shaped more by the culture than what it is that God tells us in Scripture, So I've titled the sermon uh, this morning, The Design Plan of True Religion. The Design Plan of True Religion. And the idea here, this, this title, is that God has told us how... Uh, we can relate rightly to God. He has given us his design plan of true religion. And what we'll see in our text today, what we'll see in Hosea 6, are three of God's desires for his people. These were three of God's desires during Hosea's day, uh, and these are the same desires uh, that he has for us today. Uh, But before we get started, I should probably tell you why we're in the book of Hosea. So I don't get to preach every week. I don't even really get to preach every month. So when I preach, uh, my sermons need to be self-contained, right? And the hardest thing for pastors sometimes to do is to figure out what text or what topic they're going to speak on. Uh, And so what I'm going to do whenever I get a chance to preach is I'm going to preach on the last 12 books of the Old Testament, and these are called the Minor Prophets. But rather than preach through these Minor Prophets verse by verse or chapter by chapter, which would take us approximately 87 years, uh, what I'm going to do when I get a chance to preach is I'm going to pick one key text from each of these prophets, and I'm going to preach on that text. And the idea there is that it can give you a flavor for that uh, particular prophet, and maybe you get interested and excited enough to go and read the minor prophets and study them for yourself. Uh, And so the good news about Hosea is that we don't really need much background information to make sense of this person's book. Uh, So what we do see in the book of Hosea, and what we'll do need is one sentence, one single sentence. And that sentence is, Hosea, the book of Hosea, which we're studying this morning, is God's message to the northern kingdom. That's it. Now, some of you may already be lost. That's okay. We're going to catch up in just a minute. But the book of Hosea is God's message to the northern kingdom. So let's back up for just a minute and talk about what that means. All the way back in Genesis chapter 12, God made a promise with a man named Abraham. So in Genesis chapter 12, God promised this man Abraham, he promised him three things. The first thing that God promised Abraham was that Abraham would have a land, that there would be a certain region of the earth that would belong to him. We call that area today the land of Israel, right there on the eastern Mediterranean. So he promised Abraham land. The second thing he promised Abraham was descendants. He said, you are going to have lots and lots of people that call you father, right? That are ultimately traced back to you. And we call those people the Israelites. So he promised him land. He promised him descendants. And he promised that he would be a blessing or that his offspring would be a blessing to the nations. All right, so we have the promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And then we move on, and we see a few books later that Abraham's descendants, the Israelites, are in that land. They're in the land of Israel. So we have Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. We have the descendants in the land uh, in, in the book of Exodus. And then, we have, and then we move on to kingship. Eventually, there is a king who comes to the Israelites, and we see kingship in Israel. 
Uh, and as you can see on the screen there, we have the David is the ideal king. God says, hey, David and his children, they're going to be my chosen leaders. They're the king that you're supposed to follow. But what happens is that the nation uh, splits. There's a civil war between the north and the south. And the north rejects David's kingship. They reject the descendants of David. And the south accepts the uh, Davidic kingship. So when I say this is Hosea's message to the northern kingdom, I mean Hosea is preaching right there in that circled area. He's preaching to this, this time period. The nation has split. You've got the north who has rejected David. And you've got the south who accepts him. But not only does the north reject kingship, they're bad. I mean, they are really, really bad. Right? They, they start worshiping false gods. They start completely being faithless before the Lord. Now, the southern kingdom isn't much better, but at least they have a Davidic descendant on the throne. All right, so when I say that Hosea preaches to the northern kingdom, this is the kind of uh, uh, idea, the time frame that we're talking about. And if we took the time this morning to go back and look at the opening five chapters, we would see that on every page... Hosea is crying out to the northern kingdom and proclaiming their sin to them. He is saying over and over and over again, you have rejected God. You have done these wicked things. You deserve terrible, terrible judgment, right? That's chapters one through five. And then we get to, uh, to Hosea chapter six. And we see a striking change in the tone no longer is Hosea simply saying, don't do this. He now paints a positive picture and says, instead, do this over here. Okay, so Hosea 6, we see a striking change in the tone, and it's a positive picture of what they should do. Hosea says, listen. He says, follow God's design plan for true religion. Quit trying to do your own thing. And he says, and you want to know what that design plan is? Do you want to know what it is that God desires from you? Then Hosea says, listen, and I'll tell you. And what we'll see this morning is three of God's desires for his people. First, we see that God desires repentance and not ruin. God desires repentance, not ruin. So if you have your Bibles or your apps, open with us uh, to Isaiah chapter, or to Hosea chapter 6, and let's look at the first verse. He says, come, let us return to the Lord. This beautiful picture, come and let us return to the Lord. Now let's look a little bit more closely at that key word in that sentence, the word return. Return. This is a normal cry for the prophets. Normally in the prophetic literature, they call out to the people and say, return to the Lord, follow him. Right? And returning requires three different things. Right? Just like the, a sign for a U-turn, it requires three different things. Right? If you're going to return to the Lord, the first thing you have to do is let go of what you're holding on to. The second thing that you have to do is you have to turn away and change directions. 
And then the third thing that you do is you go in that new direction, right? And so that's exactly what Hosea is calling the people to do in this very first verse. He says, let us return. Let's let go of all of those things that we were holding on to. Let's turn around and forsake those things. And instead, let's pursue God. Let's pursue the right kind of object for our affections. But he doesn't just tell them to repent. He also tells them why. He also, he also tells them why they should repent. Let's continue reading on in our verses. So at the, uh, continuing in verse one, it says, he's torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. Hosea says, you wanna know why you should repent? Do you wanna know why you should return to the Lord? Because God will put things right. See, the Northern Kingdom had known terrible wars. The Northern Kingdom had known terrible famines. They had known assassinations. They had known social and political upheaval at all levels of their society. They had chosen chaos and death, and so, the, and so God let destruction reign. But this was not the end of their story. This didn't have to be how their story ended. Hosea here tells us that, yes, you've been struck, but God can heal you. Yes, you've been injured, but God can bind you up. And he says, and you want to know what this restoration looks like? Let's continue reading on. It says, after two days, he'll revive us. On the third day, he'll restore us. That we may live in his presence. What is restoration for Hosea? It's not being the most powerful nation in the world. It's not having more gold than you can count. It's not even necessarily political safety. It's living in the presence of God. What does it mean to be bound up for Hosea? What does it mean to have your injuries addressed? It means to live in the presence of God. You see, God desires repentance, not ruin. But he will bring ruin to grow godliness. God desires our repentance. He doesn't desire our ruin, but he will bring ruin in order to grow our godliness. This is what we see here uh, in our first couple of verses in Hosea. So in these opening verses, we see these two movements. Repent, why? So that you can be restored. And Hosea repeats it in some different wording uh, in verse three. He says, let us acknowledge the Lord. Let's press on to acknowledge him. Repent. He says, let's change our direction. Let's acknowledge God. Why? And he gives another image. As surely as the sun rises, he will appear. He will come to us like the winter rains and like the spring rains that water the earth. So repent, acknowledge God. Why? Because he will come to us. Like the rains that cause the ground to grow crops, so the Lord in his presence is like rain to our souls. God desires our repentance and not our ruin. So how do these words, Hosea's words, 
to the northern kingdom, how do these particular words relate to us today? And I can think of three things. The first point of the the fact that God desires repentance uh, and not ruin is that we is don't buy the lie that God doesn't care. Don't buy the lie that God doesn't care. In these opening verses in Hosea, we see an active, passionate, committed God. We see a God who allows ruin. We see a God who calls for repentance. We see a God who is uh, desirous and anxious to be close to us. This is a God who cares. Don't buy the lie that God is out there, but he doesn't care. Second, these verses teach us that we should consider hardships as an invitation for reflection. These verses teach a difficult truth that sometimes God allows suffering as a call for us to repent. Now, that's not always the case, but Hosea teaches that sometimes this is why we suffer. Sometimes we suffer because God is calling us to repent. As I said, it's not always the case, right? We can think about the book of Job. Job suffers, but it wasn't because of some sin. Even Jesus was asked one time, there was a man who was born blind and and the religious leaders ask him, they say, Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents that he was born blind? Someone must have sinned, so who sinned? Who's being called to repent? And Jesus says, neither this man nor his parents sinned. This man was born blind so that the father above could have glory. So not every sin is a call to repentance, but when we suffer, we need to at least consider that possibility. And even if we haven't sinned and we have something to repent of uh, due to our suffering, suffering is still an invitation for us to reflect. Because when we suffer, it causes us to reevaluate our priorities. It helps us to see what we considered as important and to evaluate whether this lines up with the way things uh, are created and designed to be. So first, don't buy the lie that God doesn't care. Second, consider hardships as an invitation for reflection. And third, we should long for a God who restores us. Long for the God who restores us. Press on, Hosea says. Press on to acknowledge him. He's like the rains. What a beautiful picture that's meant to evoke in us this desire for this God who restores us. So God desires our repentance, not our ruin. But second, God desires faithfulness, not fickleness. He desires our faithfulness, not our fickleness. Let's continue looking on in verse four, just the first line. He says, what can I do with you, Ephraim? What can I do with you, Judah? And we need to stop and pause here for just a second. And there's two things that we need to figure out. The first thing we need to figure out is who in the world are Ephraim and Judah? Okay, so Ephraim was a northern state. It was the most prominent of the states in the northern kingdom. And it represented the whole northern kingdom, right? It's kind of like today if we were to say America gained its independence and rebelled against England. Well, technically, we rebelled against Great Britain, 
right? But we talk about England as a substitute for Great Britain. In the same way, when you talk about Ephraim, we're talking about the Northern Kingdom. And Judah was the name for the Southern Kingdom. So he says, what can I do with you, Northern Kingdom? What can I do with you, Southern Kingdom? And so the second thing we need to talk about is who is the I here? Something really interesting has happened. We have a switch. No longer is this Hosea's words. Instead, Hosea is speaking as if he is God. He's God's messenger. And we see this all the time in the prophets, that when they say I, sometimes they mean the prophet and sometimes they mean God. In this case, Hosea means God. So what can I do with you, God is asking. What can I do with you, northern kingdom? What can I do with you, Judah? And then he continues on and says, your love is like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears. This is a metaphor, right? Or a word picture. God's complaining about their fickleness. He says it starts off and it looks so good. Just like the morning dew looks like it's going to be sufficient for the crops to grow, but it isn't. Right? A few weeks ago, I was on my way to St. Cloud and it was a, a cold morning. Surprise, in Minnesota a few weeks ago, right? It was a cold morning, and there was a thick fog, and it was absolutely gorgeous. And I thought about stopping and taking a picture on the side of the road. Then I looked down and saw how cold it was and decided I was going to take a picture on the way back, right? But by the time I got back, the fog was gone, and the trees weren't nearly as beautiful, right? And it's the same exact thing. We've all kind of experienced this at some point or another. And this is what God is saying. You and your faithfulness is just like the fog. It's just gone. It just leaves. You're very fickle. He, God longed for faithfulness, but all he received was fickleness. And so what does he do? Verse five tells us, he says, therefore I cut you in pieces with my prophets. I killed you with the words of my mouth. I killed you with the words of my mouth. And this strikes us right as really violent language, right? Really, really harsh language. But let's look a little closer and we see something really interesting. This is different than the wounds that we saw in the earlier verses, right? Because now what is God doing? He's striking them, yes, but with his words, He's calling them. He's sending them his prophets, his messengers, in order to shake them from their apathy. He desires a relationship with them. These are harsh words, but they're words that are calling them back to God. And then it says, then my judgments go forth like the sun. These harsh words that the prophets preach, they bring light. They bring clarity. They bring truth. God wants faithfulness, not fickleness. So what then do we do with these verses? How do do these relate to us? First, don't buy the lie that life without God is satisfying. Don't buy that lie. The reason for an on-again, off-again relationship with God is that Deep down in our minds, we don't truly believe that faithfulness and fidelity to God is the perfect and right way to live, at least in those moments. We think, at least for a moment, that it's better for us that life is more satisfying if we go and we pursue something different. Don't buy that lie. Society and culture tells us something very different Pursue your dreams. Go after what makes you and your own heart happy. It doesn't matter what anyone else thinks. But life without God 
is not satisfying. And this requires, to, to follow this, to not buy that lie, requires living a life that looks drastically different than the rest of the world. Believing that life with God is the only kind of life that's satisfying requires living a drastically different life than the rest of the world uh, thinks in the way that they live and move in this world. So one, don't buy the lie that life without God is satisfying. And second, we should respond to God's love with our love for him. Respond to God's love with our love for him. We love because he first loved us. God here moves first. He speaks to the people and he calls them to respond to him. God loves his people and sends his word and his word is true if only they would respond and listen to it. So likewise for us, will we love God in return and in response to his love for us? So first, we saw that God desires repentance and not ruin. Second, we saw that God desires faithfulness and not fickleness. And now in our last verse, we'll see that God desires relationship, not mere ritual. Hosea 6.6 6 says, For I desire mercy and not sacrifice, an acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. This is the key text. This is the key verse and the reason that I chose this passage for us to look at for Hosea is Hosea 6.6. 6. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Okay, so what does this verse mean? Let's look at it. So he says he desires mercy. Well, what is that mercy? What does that mean? Right, and this is a, a, a word that only shows up one other time in this particular book, and it's in Hosea chapter 4. Hosea chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Hosea tells them, he says, listen to the word that God has against you, O Israelites. He says, hear what I'm going to say. There is no faithfulness. So when he says faithfulness in chapter 4, it's the same word as mercy here in chapter 6. There is no faithfulness. No love, no acknowledgement of God in the land. And then Hosea goes on. This is what's really interesting. He says, so there's no faithfulness. There's no mercy. What is there? Well, there's murder. There's lying. There's deceit. He keeps going on. There's stealing, adultery. There's bloodshed. And Hosea then is picking up on this theme when he says in Hosea 6, 6, I desire mercy says, you want to know what mercy means? Look at how I've used the word earlier. Mercy means rightly relating to God in a way that leads to right relationships with others. That's what God desires. He desires mercy. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. That's always interested me. Isn't that fascinating? I, not sacrifice. What does that mean? Rather than burnt offerings. Have you ever stopped to think about that? You think, have you ever tried to read through the Bible and you get to Leviticus and then you read Hosea 6 and you're like, are you kidding me? You mean God didn't want sacrifice this whole time? Why does he spend a whole book talking about it? Right? What does he mean? What is Hosea saying here? Would the priests have been mad at him? It said, Hosea, ixnay on the sacrifice say, right? <laughs> what is he talking about? I desire mercy and not sacrifice. 
You see, these actions were never the goal in itself. Even in the book of Leviticus, it's not about going through the motions. It's about the right relationship expressed in the right kind of actions. The same thing that was true for them is true for us. So God desires a relationship, but he's not going to be manipulated, right? You can't just fool God and say, well, I offered my sacrifice in the right kind of way, so you have to bless me, right? You've got to cause my crops to grow. You have to help my marriage be good because I've done the right kinds of things, right, God? It was never about the bare ritual. It was always about the relationship, always about the relationship. So these verses teach us several things. First, don't buy the lie that God can be controlled. Don't buy the lie that God can be controlled. You and me, we, we do the same thing as these ancient Israelites. We don't offer lambs and cows, right? But this thinking creeps into our minds. God, why is this happening to me? Haven't I been faithful? Didn't I come to church when it had snowed five, six inches when the weatherman said it was gonna snow two to three? God, don't I give faithfully to the offering plate? Don't I try and live righteously? That's trying to control God. You're trying to manipulate God in the same way that you think offering a cow is gonna make him happy with you. Don't buy the lie that God can be controlled. Second, the second application from these verses is that we should make ritual serve the relationship. This is not a verse against all rituals. Rituals are everywhere in our life. We have rituals here at this church every Sunday where we get up and we open with song and the, ser- and the service reaches its climax with the sermon. Right? Today, we spoke the Apostles' Creed That was a kind of ritual, right? But the point is, those rituals are not the thing in themselves. The rituals serve the relationship. Sometimes you think, I want to express my belief and trust in God. How do I do it? You express the Apostles' Creed. You think to yourself, I want to praise God the way these psalmists do in the book of Psalms. How do I do it? We can come and sing worship songs together. I want to help God in the work. I want to show that I trust and am am giving back to him what he's given to me. How do you do it? You put money in the offering. Because those rituals serve the relationship. They're not a substitute for the relationship. So make rituals serve our relationship. And then finally, be rightly related to God. Being rightly related to God. And this brings us to the climax of this text and this sermon. We've spent our time this morning looking at God's words through his prophet Hosea, and we've seen a little bit about God and how he works. And we've seen that God desires a relationship, but how? How can we be rightly related to God? Antony Flew could only understand a creator God a being who was so far away from humanity that he never would have spoken to us. But we see today, this is not true. God has spoken to us. God speaks to us through our sufferings. God speaks to us through his prophets. God speaks to us through his word. And most importantly, God speaks to us through Jesus.
You see, Hosea knew that sinful humanity could be rightly related to God. Hosea knew that ancient Israel could have a right relationship with God, but he didn't know how this was possible. For so many pages of the Old Testament, this is a question without an answer. How can sinful humanity be rightly related to God? And then we get to Jesus. And Jesus is the answer to every question we never even knew we had. How can we be rightly related to God? By believing that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. You see, even on our best days, we're just like Ephraim and Judah. Even on our best days, we're fickle and manipulative and deserve ruin. But God was not content to let that be the end of our story. Instead, the God who created the universe became the God who walked in Israel. He lived a sinless life and he died in our place. He took on our ruin and he defeated sin, death, and evil in his victorious resurrection. And those who accept him as Savior and Lord are united with him by faith so that his victory is our victory. No longer are we destined for ruin, but we can be destined for, for a relationship. He wants that relationship to be expressed in a life that's lived rightly before God and before others. So this theme in Hosea 6 finds its climax in Jesus. God desires a relationship with him, and that relationship is possible in Christ. So then, let us embrace this good news. Let us embrace this gospel. You may be hearing this for the first time. Embrace this gospel. You may be hearing this as a faithful follower of Christ for the hundredth time. Embrace this gospel. May we never grow tired of hearing it. May we never grow too old to proclaim it. That God in Christ is reconciling the world to himself. That God wants a relationship with us and has made that possible. Antony Fallou believed a lie. He believed that God and his desires were not knowable. But this morning we see three desires of God that are as true for us today as they were for Hosea. God desires repentance and not ruin. God desires faithfulness and not fickleness. And God desires relationship, not mere ritual. The God of the universe desires a relationship with you and with me. And God has made that relationship possible in Jesus. So as we leave this place, let us go forward boldly, knowing that God and his desires are knowable as we know and love Jesus. Jesus.